Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. Before we get into the message, and we'll have more at the next service than this service, but looking around, I know we have some uh, that have been ordained before as uh, deacons. I know we've got one that's also ordained in the ministry before. So if, if you have already been ordained, would you stand if you're serving? Also, if you have served as a deacon here in our church, would you stand if you're ordained? Okay. Can I get you to show some appreciation to them also? We're going to be uh, hanging out to start with in, in Acts chapter 6 because I think there's a story in Acts chapter 6 that really is the beginning of, of deacon ministry and we'll kind of see the, the, the reason behind that. And then after we have hung out a little bit in Acts 6, we'll be moving over into 1 Timothy chapter 3 and uh, kind of seeing laid out, detailed out. Uh, some qualifications that the Holy Spirit moved upon uh, Paul's heart as he was writing to Timothy, uh, explaining how the, the church ought to behave, how the church ought to, to function. Uh, so if you'll join us over in Acts chapter 6, and verse 1 through 7 to begin with, uh, and I'm not going to read it just yet, I'll read it as we go through uh, the message today. But what we're going to talk about to begin with is the original need for deacons. The original need for deacons serving, serving, be sure you get that word, serving in the ministry of the local church. The, the original need for deacon ministry involved them being servants. I'm afraid the, the, the church has missed that somewhere along the way over the years. Matter of fact, they were serving tables. We're going to see in just a minute. It wasn't like it was some, you know, big and important type of ministry that someone just wanted to have a title and, and things like that. We're going to see that they were serving tables. See, the Bible doesn't present deacons as being like a managing board of a church. Somewhere along the way and, and trying to maybe bring democracy over into the church or whatever, uh, that's wound up happening in, in the majority of churches, especially in, in Baptist churches where it's like they're a, a managing board. But that doesn't appear to me to be the way the Bible presents it. It presents them as being servants. And we'll establish that also in 1 Timothy 3 when we get over there. But I want you just to look at some original needs for deacons in the life of a local church. And I want you to notice also as we get near the end of this in Acts chapter 6, I want you to notice the big ministry impact, the tremendous ministry impact that happened because of the, of the ministry of, of deacons. So to begin with, as we look at uh, Acts chapter 6, the very first part of verse 1, we're going to see there's an increasing need for ministry. There's an increasing need for ministry. The Bible says now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the, the early church was experiencing really rapid growth. There were days when thousands were added to the church on more than one <laughs> occasion. It was experiencing a lot of fast Growth. Acts chapter 2 verse 41 tells about a day when thousands were added uh, to the church. God had been adding to the number of the church in Jerusalem. It also tells us in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, day by day. So it's like every day someone's being added to the church in that day and time. So it was really growing fast. 
But guys, it was also a time when it would have been a little bit scary, maybe a little bit challenging to be in a leadership role within the church. Because if you look right back in the chapter before Acts chapter six, we'll see one instance of Christians being persecuted, the, the apostles being persecuted. So it might not be in the easiest time to say, hey, yeah, I want to sign up to be a leader of the church because they were being persecuted. It was also a time of kind of church cleansing because if you remember the story, Ananias and Sapphira had uh, lied to the Holy Spirit was the way Peter put it because people were selling their possessions and they were bringing them and laying them at the apostles' feet where they could meet the needs of, of everyone that was coming to Christ to meet ministry needs there in, in that early church in Jerusalem. And uh, Ananias and Sapphira kind of wanted their name in the hat for looking really good and having give something, but their motive was wrong, having give something to the church so they sold some property they had and they made it sound like they gave all of it to the church, but they didn't give all of it to the church. And when that became known, as Peter went and confronted each one of them, guess what happened? They fell dead. <laughs> Wonder how that would hurt our tennis today if someone found out that God was trying to cleanse the church and have so much holiness within his church that if you told a lie, you'd fall dead. You know, it was a little bit challenging time. In other words, it wasn't a time when someone would have thought, hey, yeah, I want to be a deacon just so people will know who I am and I've got a title and I want to be a deacon. That wasn't in that day. Because there's some huge challenges that would have been presented them having been deacons in that day and time. There's increasing need. What you notice also, as we look at the last part of verse 1 in Acts 6 down through verse 3, that there's some conflict that required action. Now, I put in parentheses, and I'll explain that in in this in just a moment, not reaction, not reaction. But there was some some conflict that happened that called for some action to take place. The Bible says there, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, talking about as the food was being brought out. They were sitting there to to eat. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we'll appoint over this duty. Notice the word complaint. In other words, the early church had difficulties right in the very beginning. I'd plan to say this later. I'll just go ahead and say it now. You know there's not anything, any such thing as a perfect church. All churches have problems. I've had people tell me, I've had pastors ask me before, do you, do you know of a really, really good church, a really perfect church, because where you might get, put my name in to be there. And most of them I'll say no, and they'll look at me like, Why? And I'll say, if it's a perfect church, you don't need to join there because it won't be perfect anymore. <laughs> if you're looking to find a perfect church somewhere that doesn't exist here on this planet, oh, it does theologically and doctrinally from God's point of view, because when he looks at us, he sees the very righteousness of his own son. But in practical application, there's no such thing as a perfect church without any problems whatsoever. And if there were to be, don't join it, you'd mess it up. <laughs> I'd mess it up. Amen. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
The word complaint comes from a, a Greek word, gagosmos. It means a, a murmur or a grumbling. The, think about the way that word, the word kind of sounds ugly, doesn't it? Gos, the, the, way, the way it's pronounced, gagosmos. It, it, it sounds like it's an ugly word. Grumbling and gossiping things is very ugly a lot of times. It could do a lot of destruction. But these Hellenists felt like their widows were being neglected or overlooked is what the word means during that distribution of food. So here, even in the early church, like I said a moment ago, they, they had people complaining and grumbling and, and murmuring. But the background will help us understand the reason for the complaint a little bit better. The, the Hellenists were people that had converted at one point in time to Judaism, but they did not speak Hebrew. They were not of Jewish descent. And instead, they spoke Greek. So most of the Jewish believers in, in Jerusalem, they were born Jews. They didn't have to convert to Judaism. They were born Jews, and they spoke either Hebrew or Aramaic. And in fact, into that, the practice over the years of the way the Jews looked down upon anyone that was considered a Gentile, you know, like they were just lower life forms of some type. So now factor all that background into this situation, the, these Hellenists, these Greek, Greeks who had converted over to Judaism, they already had a reason to kind of feel like they were being minimized. They weren't born Jewish, and the rest of the church was there in Jerusalem. They, they didn't speak Hebrew, and they didn't speak Aramaic, so you had a problem with language and communication. So instantly, they would have felt kind of singled out and, and felt minimized to a certain degree. Now, if they don't feel like their widows are being taken care of and the food brought to them, you understand the picture of it with all the background there? Th that's why they filed this complaint, because of they, they felt like there was a reason, that they were looking down on them for some reason. Because what I really want you to key in on is this. Instead of the apostles getting angry, instead of the apostles getting frustrated or, or upset that someone was complaining or murmuring or grumbling, instead of them having just an emotional reaction, what they do is this. They took action and sought to meet the needs. They did not just get upset. They said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you. They came up with a process. Come out, pick out from among you uh, seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, of wisdom, whom we will appoint over this duty. They use the word serve there, and that literally means to be an attendant, to wait upon it in a menial type task. It doesn't mean some elevated position. It meant that they were servants. It meant that they were willing to run errands. That's what the root word means. The same word is used later that's actually translated as deacon in 1 Timothy when we get over there in a few moments. But what I want you really to see is this. They took action to meet the needs instead of reacting and being upset because somebody was complaining. Man, that's a lesson we ought to learn. 
That's a lesson we ought to learn in the church. That's a lesson that I need to remember. That's a lesson our staff needs to remember. That's a lesson that our deacons need to remember. That's a lesson that, that anyone in a leadership role needs to remember at day three church. Sometimes somebody might complain and murmur and be critical about something. When that happens, instead of us getting upset and mad, we need to evaluate if there's a reason for it. And if there's a reason for it, we need to come up with a solution that meets the need and take action, not get upset and just react to it. So what we have here is the, the, the first deacons being selected, I think, in the history of the church. The action of choosing deacons allowed the apostles to focus on using their time and their gifts and, and prayer and, and preaching the word of God. And guys, that's still the same reason why we need deacons in this day and time to meet needs, to satisfy complaints, not increase complaints. That's not the role of a deacon. It's to try and meet the need and satisfy complaints so that I and our pastoral staff can focus on using our higher gifts to the best means possible. That's why we still need deacon ministry. Which knows a little side note I wrote down. Church problems do this. We don't think about it like this. We should. Church problems give us an opportunity to exercise our faith. Not just our faith in God, but also our faith in each other, where we trust each other to help meet ministry needs. Third thing I want you to see is this. There's a selection process with requirements listed here. Verse 3 of Acts 6 said, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint over this duty. Notice he used the phrase, pick out. And that word means to inspect and select. You don't just select, you need to inspect and select. And the word appoint means to designate. So it appears to me the selection process didn't involve any type of ballot, any type of election process. And I know most churches use that kind of as a nomination to where, you know, you'll have names placed in and then you'll vote on those names. Once again, I think we brought things out of our democracy and out of politics over in the church. My fear is, and I've seen it happen before over the years, is that when you do that, it does become political sometimes. But that doesn't seem to be what happened here. It's not just whoever got the most votes. So at, at day three, we don't do that because, I, I, be honest, guys, I've tried to find it. I can't find it in the Bible. What we do is myself and our staff and our lay leaders talk about who we think may have the potential gift in us in their lives to be a deacon, and then kind of after we come up with some of those names, we, we interview them. And uh, our interview is getting even more detailed. I think the two guys were uh, ordained in today, Joel uh, Pennell and, and Joey Finley. Uh, I, I think they looked a little bit shell-shocked after we got through the questioning process uh, uh, a little bit. Oh, they did fine. I'm not saying that they didn't do fine, but I think maybe we, we gave them more than what they were expecting. But then we take them through an interview process, and now we have uh, tried to establish something where Daryl is going to lead in, in, in training uh, of the deacons. So we try and look at biblical qualifications, and then we interview them, and we select them, and we set them apart. And that's what we're doing today. We're setting apart two men that have never been ordained as deacons before to serve the ministry of our church. 
And that's why I said it's a very, very important day. It appears to me there are at least five requirements that are listed there. It said they were men. Ladies, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Pick out seven men. They were men. They were believers. Pick out from among you. They're talking to believers. They're talking to the early church. They were believers. What good is it to have a deacon that's not a believer? Huh? I don't care how many businesses they own or how much money they have. Have good reputations. It's said to have a good witness or a, a testimony. Be spiritually mature. They're allowing the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to guide their lives. And that phrase, they are being full, means to be, means to be replete, means to be influenced. It means to be completed or, or mature by, by the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, their lives are being driven by a different spirit than what's in this world. Number five, they're to have spiritual and practical wisdom. Because I think both of those are important. I've met people before who had spiritual wisdom, or at least they knew the Bible. They could quote it frontwards and backwards, but they couldn't apply it a bit to their lives. Just knowing the scripture doesn't do any good if you don't apply the Bible to your choices and apply the Bible to your life. So we need men to serve as deacons who, yes, know the Bible. They know the word of God, but they can apply the word of God to their lives. And also they have the type of practical, common sense wisdom to make good choices. We should notice also there's a dual focus purpose in this story. We've already read part of it in the second part of verse 3. But it says, Whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer into the ministry of the Word. You see a, a twofold focus there, a twofold purpose. The first one is simply this the needs are going to be met. The, the needs of the Grecian women are going to be met. Those widows are going to be met because they are going to appoint someone over that duty. So the need will be met. That's the first part of the purpose in the selection of these deacons. The second part is this. The apostles would have time to focus upon prayer and focus upon studying the word and preaching the word and proclaiming the word. In other words, they would have the opportunity to focus on their higher gifts, on their more important calling. It's what seems to me to be placed here. We're supposed to be involved in prayer, and that word can also be translated worship or public oratory. It's not just getting in a prayer closet. We ought to do that, but it even includes public worship. We're to devote ourselves. We're to be earnest towards. We're we're to be constantly diligent. And guys, I'll, I'll be the first to confess this. There were times in the ministry that I tried to do everything I could to please everybody, and I'd run here and do that, and I'd run here and do this. And, and a lot of, I'm not talking about going to hospitals. I'm talking about some menial-type stuff. And I finally had to come to the point that I realized the most important thing I do every week is to prepare to come here and share with you. And I had to decide I'm going to put about 20 hours a week at least into preparation as I did that, even if some other things had to be 
left to the side. But you see, if we have an effective deacon ministry, those other things won't be left to the side. Those needs can be met and will free me up to practice my higher gifts. Free John up to practice his higher gifts. Free Daryl up to practice their higher gifts. Which is the ministry of the word. To attend to as a servant. To attend to the divine communication of God. The, the written and the living word of God, which is Jesus. Last thing I want you to notice before we bounce over into, into 1 Timothy is this. I want you to notice there was a dramatic ministry increase. The Bible says, beginning in verse 5 of Acts 6, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Will you stop and just think about that for a minute? For the Holy Spirit of God to record your name eternally in the Word of God and say that you were full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Wow. And Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, who, by the way, is a proselyte of Antioch. That means he also was not born a Jew. These that they set before the apostles, and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. But here's what I want you to get. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, they chose seven men. I, I don't think that means you only can have seven deacons. I don't think that's what it's saying. I will say this, though. Think about how many thousands was in that early church in Jerusalem and the responsibility that those seven men took upon themselves the number of people they had in that early church. And they chose these seven men. Stephen, whose name comes from a word meaning the victor's crown, the Stephanus crown, someone that would run the, the, the race and, and win the victory. Man, what a glorious example he was of doing so, huh? You remember the rest of the story of Stephen? He was kind of like a, a bright light that flamed out all of a sudden. Because he stood and he told people the truth of the gospel. And they didn't like that he told people the truth of the gospel. And they had him arrested. And then they took him out to stone him to death for his stance and for his faith and what he had told them. And as they were in the process of stoning him to death, he looked upwards and he saw Jesus himself standing in heaven. Oh, that's always blessed me to think about that. Stephen stood for Christ here on earth, and Jesus stood for Stephen in heaven, honoring his commitment, honoring his sacrifice, waiting to receive him to himself. That's a picture of a victorious servant of Christ. By the way, when all that happened, there's a young man standing by by the name of Saul. You ever heard of him before? Who became Paul? And he was holding the coats of those that were throwing the stones. And the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I think maybe there's something even there that started to prick his heart before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Some of the others' names 
mean this. We're told that Philip, his name means fond of horses. I'll apply that in a minute. <laughs> Prochorus, his name means before the dance. Nicanor, his name means victorious. Tim, and his name means valuable. Parmenius, his name means constant. Nicholas means victorious over people. Will you bear with me for a minute? Let me spiritualize those names just a little bit. And make some application from those names just a little bit. First of all, will you be victorious for Christ as Stephen was? Not just these that were ordained as deacons or have been ordained as deacons, but will all of us stand victorious for Christ as Stephen did? Philip, whose name meant fond of horses, no matter what you're fond of, no matter what you enjoy in your life, will you be more fond of Jesus than you will anything else? Now, Canner, whose name... Or uh, Procurius, whose name means before the dance. Will you consider your dance with Jesus and your dance for Jesus more important than any other dance in this life? Now, Canner, whose name means victorious, will you live a victorious life as a servant of Christ? Timon, whose name meant valuable, will you be a valuable person and serve Christ and others? Parmenius, whose name meant constant, will you be constant for Jesus, be stable for Jesus, be that type of constant disciple for Jesus? Nicholas, who means victorious or triumphant over people. Will you as a believer and guys, our deacons, will you be the kind of person that lives a victorious life over and above the general population of this world who just waste their life for no eternal reason? But I want you to notice what happened after these men began serving Jesus and others in the role of being set-apart servants, being deacons. The Word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Wow. Look at that. Previously in the book of Acts, we're told that God added to the church. He was adding to the church daily. Now we hit the word multiplied. And we're told that even some of the Jewish priests are being converted to Christ. They're coming to the gospel. Let let me illustrate that for you a little bit about the multiplication part. If I were to tell you that I'll go with you to your bank and I will put $2 into your account, would you get very excited about that? If I were just to add $2 to your account... Or I told you, or we can go to the bank and I'm going to multiply your account by two. Which one would you rather have? (laughs) Sure, multiplication, right? Look, Look what happened here, how God used the ministry of these deacons in the life of that early church. God had been adding to the number, adding to the number daily. Now, all of a sudden, after these men are set apart, we see God multiplying the church. 
Multiplication is taking place. Greater growth is taking place. More people are coming to Christ. More ministry is being multiplied because these men have been set apart as deacons. So guys, as we strive at day three to try and get our deacon ministry on track and launch the service role of our deacons and have a family ministry plan for our deacons. And as we ordain new deacons, you know what? We ought to have a great anticipation and a desire to see God multiply ministry in our midst. That ought to be the goal for it. You see, we need deacons who serve, not just men who are called deacons. We need people who will serve as deacons not just have a title of deacon. Bill Moody said this, it's better to put 10 men to work than to try to do the work of 10 men. That's what I was alluding to earlier. I've tried that. It doesn't work out very well. It doesn't work out. It's not productive for this place on Sunday morning. It's not productive in my life. It's better to have 10 men doing work than one or two trying to carry the work of 10 people. And certainly it's better for pastors and better for the workers that we enlist who get to use their abilities to serve Christ and others. And it's better for the church as a whole as we release more people to do ministry. And even though I'm preaching about deacon ministry today, I want to remind you of something before we move on. The Bible says all of us are to be ministers. Not just pastors, not just deacons. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Some translate that pastor teachers. For this purpose, to equip the saints. Who's that? It's all of us. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For the building of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. We're supposed to be helping each other grow in our faith to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's happening in our culture. That's one of the reasons the next series is going to address hot topics in our culture. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth, how? In love. That's what we mess up a lot of times. We are to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which is equipped. When each person is working properly, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's what the Bible says we're supposed to do. Not just those that are ordained, but all of us are called to be servants. All of us are called to be ministers. God, I want to close by focusing on the biblical qualifications. So if you'll join me now over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. The biblical qualifications for deacons serving in the local church. We've already seen some of them being full of the Spirit. You know, talked about being men. First Timothy 3, 8-13. I'll read beyond that near the end of the message, but here, look at this. Deacons likewise. He just had finished talking about the qualifications of, uh, of pastors slash bishops. 
Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, she's just going to leave this up on the screen, and I'm just going to walk through it, and I'm going to give you, I think, what it means based upon the words that are used there in the original Greek. To help us understand what these qualifications look like. I understand the word dignified because we're in Caldwell County. Not too many of us will think I'm dignified. The name means honorable or worthy of respect. That's what we need to look for in deacons. It said not double-tongued. And that means this, not telling a different story. That's literally what it means. In other words, you tell someone a story and you come over here and tell someone else a completely different story. Regrettably, I've seen that happen in, quote, deacon board meetings at other churches where someone in the deacon meeting would agree and go along with something, but then you get outside the deacon meeting, they completely change what they said, and they're saying something different than what they said inside the deacon's meeting. Guys, the Bible says don't do that. Not to tell one story here and in a different story to somebody else. Not addicted to much wine. That literally means this, not to hold the mind to much wine. And by the way, the word there for wine means effervescence or fermented. That's exactly what it means. It's not talking about grape juice. I understand with us being a Baptist church, that's a strange stance for me to take, but I'm going to take a biblical stance instead of me trying to hedge my bet because of what my culture tells me in my church culture and how I grew up. I don't want someone thinking that I hedged the bet when it came to talking about alcohol. How do they know I'm not hedging the bet and talking about the gospel to them? Whether it is popular or not, I'm going to tell you what the Bible literally says. It says to not be given a much wine. It means don't hold the mind to. Don't allow alcohol to control you. Don't allow it to control your desires, to control your actions. It doesn't mean it's a sin for anyone to drink alcohol at all. What were they saying against Jesus? They were accusing him of being a wine beaver. They wouldn't do that if he's just drinking grape juice, guys. But I will tell you something the Bible clearly says, and it clearly says that drunkenness is always wrong. Being controlled by it is always wrong. And I understand there's a risk in me throwing that out here, but I'll also add this to it. For some of you, it's always wrong because you don't need to touch it because of the tendencies that you have in your life. And in this culture... We need to maybe reach over and grab Romans 14 and bring it in just for a minute and understand that we don't need to be a stumbling block for other people. And that, to me, would be the greater reason to have abstinence in your life, not to be a stumbling block to others. The Bible doesn't teach it's a sin just for someone to take a drink of alcohol. 
That being said, we're not getting the deacons together and having a wine party. Not greedy for dishonest gain. No, notice the word dishonest. It's not talking about just having money or making a living. It's sordid gain. It's, it's shameful gain. Not being greedy for that type of wrong type of gain. Holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And that literally means to hold, hold as a personal possession. The mystery, and the word mystery means to, to shut the mouth. Now, that doesn't mean we don't talk about it. I think what it means is this, that the gospel is so amazed and we're almost speechless at the reality and the truth of the gospel, that God would send his son to die on the cross, and that through faith in him, we can be forgiven of all of our sins. That's something that, that would shut our mouths when it comes to thinking we can work our way to heaven or be good enough to go to heaven. No, it's Jesus on the cross, period. And the mystery of that gospel should, should leave us speechless. A mystery of the, the faith, a mystery of the reliance that you have upon Christ for salvation. With, the word with literally means in a fixed position for you to maintain it with a clean or a moral conscience. It doesn't mean you're keeping a secret. It doesn't mean it's a mystery. You don't tell anybody else. We're supposed to tell the gospel to other people. We're supposed to share the the mystery of our faith with other people. I think it's simply saying this. It's an amazing thing. It's so amazing that that we almost don't have words to communicate it. That's how amazing the gospel is. And we need to hold that as a personal possession with a clear conscience. Can I tell you how you can't hold it with a clear conscience? You cannot have a clear conscience about the gospel if you're keeping quiet about it. If you're not sharing it with anybody else. If you're not trying to discover your one that we just focused upon and lead other people to Jesus, you'll not have a clear conscience. The way you need to have a clear conscience is this. You know that you're sharing the gospel and you know that you're allowing the gospel to impact your life on a daily basis. Not just having said, I walked an aisle so I know I'm going to heaven. No, that doesn't get it, folks. You need to be allowing the gospel to impact your life as you grow in Christ. I think that's what it means. It says to be tested first. To test for approval. It doesn't mean they're taking a test, although we kind of gave them an or test. <laughs> but in order of importance, first in order of importance, we need to test them to be sure they're, they're approved. They know their faith. We know that they're a believer. Then let them serve as deacons. The word then means a succession. In other words, they, they've been tested. And then on the other side of that, they have been uh, approved Let them then serve as deacons. Let them be that servant we talked about back over in Acts 6. They're a servant. They're not a a governing board of the church. They're a servant. They're to wait upon people in a menial way. They're to serve people, minister to people, even run errands to, to, to teach people is what the word means. You see, deacon is a ministry. That's why I'm talking about the ministry of deacons today. Ministry is a, or deacons is a ministry. It's not just a title. Do you understand that? And this is if they prove themselves blameless. Boy, that worries you, doesn't it? Here's what it means. Being unaccused or without accusation, being irreproachable. 
Blameless does not mean perfect. You understand that? How many here are perfect? Okay, you're being honest this morning. None of us are perfect. Then how can we be blameless or irreproachable? I think here's what it's saying. Deacons are human. I'm human. When we do fall, when we do stumble, when we have let some type of sin creep into our lives, we need to repent of that as quickly as possible. So we're blameless before God. And if it requires it because it's public knowledge that you have fallen, the only way you can recover from that is give public repentance before the congregation that you serve because that's the only way in your mind you can say, I ask God to forgive me. I ask that body of believers to forgive me. I didn't try and sweep it under the rug. I did not try and hide it. And that's the only way you can feel like you're blameless or irreproachable is to keep your life confessed up before the Lord. Doesn't mean perfect. And then it talks about their wives. It says they're also to be dignified or honorable, the same word that was used earlier. They're not to be a slander or a gossiper. By the way, the word that's used there for slander or a gossiper is the same word that's used to refer to Satan. Now, don't run off from here and say the pastor at day three church said deacons' wives are the devil. That's not what I said. But if you practice, whether you're a deacon's wife or a believer or anybody, if you practice slandering other people and gossiping against other people, you're doing the devil's work. They're to be sober-minded or serious-minded is what the word means. They're to be faithful or trustworthy in all things. This is let deacons be the husband of one wife. The, the word says to let them be. The root word means to exist. Where it says let, that root word means to exist. To exist, it's talking about a, a, a man, all the, the tenses, ladies, once again. I didn't write this. The Holy Spirit had this written. This is God's word. All the tenses of the verbs in this verse here are in the masculine tense. And, and it's talking about a man as an individual male. Let them be one, where it says husband, an individual male, one of one wife or one woman. And some people believe a lot of evidence leads toward this in the Greek. It lends itself to say this, let them be a one woman man. A one woman man. Managing their children in their own households well. You're standing at like in, in, in rank presiding over something. Your own children, your own family, in a morally well manner, in an honest manner. The same word can even mean beautifully or virtuously. You're not trying to be mean-spirited. You're not trying to be some demigod of your family, but you're trying to raise them in a beautiful way that honors the Lord. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. When one serves well as that servant we talked about a moment ago, they're serving morally well, they're serving honestly. Same word we saw a minute ago, beautifully or, or virtuously. They gain a good standing for themselves. They're making around themselves, is what the word means, a good, valuable, virtuous, beautiful step, a place they're standing. 
And they also gain this. They gain much confidence, much boldness, much outspokenness, much assurance in a fixed position in the faith that they have in Jesus. John Luther said this, good character is more to be praised than outstanding talent. Most talents are to some extent a gift. Good character, by contrast, is not given to us. We build it piece by piece. Thought by thought, by choice, by courage and determination. I want to close by looking at verse 14 through 16. It doesn't, it's not specific to deacons, but I think it sure has an application to deacons and to pastors and to all of us. Verse 14 through 16, following right along in, in 1 Timothy 3, says this. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon. But just in case he doesn't get to come to them soon, he's saying, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's what he was writing to Timothy about. This is how you do church would be a way to translate that maybe today. Which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the ministry of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Apply that to the deacon ministry some this morning, but also apply it to our own lives and to the church. Paul's writing this so we can know how to behave in the household of God. The living God, by the way, he's still alive. He's not dead. You know what that tells me? The church is his house. It's his body. I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about believers. We are his house. He dwells in us. He dwells in believers corporately as the church. The church is not mine. The church is not yours. The church is not a deacon's. The church does not belong to some other pastoral staff individual. The church belongs to Jesus. He is the one that's head of the church. The church is God's. It's his household. It doesn't belong to anybody else. I will shoot that down faster than anything else. If you refer to this as my church, it is not my church. I didn't die for it. Jesus did. If you refer to it as your church, it is not your church. I don't care how much you've invested in it, how much time you put into it, and everything else. It is not your church. It belongs to Jesus. God sent his son to die for it. And he's alive. That means he still owns it. Amen? And he's always going to be alive, so it's always going to be his. Notice what he says here about the church. We're the pillar and the buttress of God's truth on earth. Don't ever minimize the church or being part of the church. Some people debate what pillar means, whether it's talking about a, a support. I believe it could be talking about both, or it's talking about a pedestal that you put something on to display. I think both are applicable. Guys, the church, we're the pillar that's to be displaying the truth of God's word to the world. 
We're like a foundation support for the word of God in this world. It's not going to be carried out by social services. It's not going to be carried out by the government. We as the church are the ones who are the pillar of God's truth. That word buttress means a, a protective or defensive wall. We're supposed to be protecting the word of God, holding forth the word of God. And then he also said this about the church. We, the church, confess a great mystery of godliness. Did you see where he said that? You want to know what that is? You want to know what the mystery of godliness is? Here's what it is. The mystery of godliness is this. Jesus came in the flesh. God came in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Holy Spirit. In other words, all the things he claimed about himself, the Holy Spirit proved to be true whether it be the miracles or whether it be after they nailed him to the cross and put him in the tomb and he said he would take his life back up on the third day. The Holy Spirit vindicated everything fully, completely, totally about Jesus. He was seen of angels in eternity past. He was seen on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the tomb. He was seen by angels as he ascended back into heaven and he took his rightful place at the right hand of God. He was seen by angels. He's being proclaimed in the nations. He's being believed on the world. And he was taken up to glory as I alluded to a moment ago and he sat down on the right hand of God. That's the Jesus we serve. That's the mystery of godliness. That's why it's worthwhile for me to do what I do. That's why it's worthwhile for these men to be ordained deacons and other people in our church, the men who've been ordained deacons and serve as deacons. That's why it's worthy to do so because how great the mystery of godliness is. That's why it's worthwhile you teaching children. That's why it's worthwhile you pulling to a place for people to park. That's why it's worthwhile for you to be a greeter and stand and hold a door and hand someone one of our bulletins when they come in. That's why it's worthwhile for you to serve and celebrate recovery or our men's ministry or our women's ministry or anything else under the sun that takes place as ministry at day three church. It's worthy for this reason and this reason alone. It's worthy because Jesus did everything that we're told right here in these scriptures. Even though we were focusing upon deacon ministry, there are elements of that I think that God could use to speak to your heart especially there at the end as we talked about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Uh, I'm going to ask these men if they would to stand here at the front. And I'm also going to encourage you during the invitation to do a couple things. If you have brought things for Operation Christmas Child, that's going to be part of our invitation for uh, a few months now, for you to bring those items and put them in the box during this time. Uh, But also I, I want to invite any of you that want to do so during the invitation to come and let these men know that you'll be praying for them as they are uh, standing here at the front. But if God spoke to you in some way, especially if you need Christ as your Savior, we've got a young girl we'll be baptizing in the, the next service. Her parents call me, our dad call me this week, and I'm going to meet with them at 10 o'clock just to go over a few things with her. Uh, but if you would uh, be in prayer about that. But maybe you're someone that uh, needs to be baptized this morning. We'll get you as dry as we can. If you've never been baptized, we've got towels and things like that here at the front. Maybe you're someone who needs to come and trust in Christ during this time also. Let me invite you please to stand this time of invitation. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, 
please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life.